Corinthians, uh, we're in chapter 7, uh, we're going to be finishing chapter 7 off this morning with the Lord's help, and so we're just going to pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word now, we pray that you would speak to us through it. May your Holy Spirit help us and enable us. May your Holy Spirit help me and enable me to bring your message, and may your Holy Spirit speak into our hearts at our point of need. May we not just be hearers, but may we be doers also. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we looked at the, the little section here in the middle, it's possibly entitled in your Bibles, Live As You Are Called. It seemed like a tangent. Paul was talking about principles of marriage and, and, and purity, and, and then he goes off on this little tangent, and the main thrust that we saw last week from verses 17 to 24 was not to settle for the world's standards not to settle for the, the dreams or the value or the meaning of life that the world gives, but to remember that as a believer, as a Christian, as someone who's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, our value is in the fact that God has called us. Our value is in the fact that Christ has paid the price for our sins. We've been bought with a price, and that gives us a peace and a confidence in the moment, and it gives us a hope for the future. But Paul now moves back from his tangent to the original theme of this chapter 7, namely relationships. And I'm just quite amazed, as often happens, that some of the subjects that we've been talking about and looking at within the student seminars just fit so closely with where we are today. And I, and I cannot take any credit for that. This is just how the Holy Spirit has brought us through to this stage because the tangent is connected to the rest of the chapter in some ways, but he brings it back and now he's talking about those that are betrothed. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. We need to ask ourselves, well, who are the betrothed? He hasn't talked about them before. And the original word that's used here can be translated in, in two ways. And maybe the virgin, the, sorry, the version of your Bible uses the word virgin. Uh, one of the meanings is a, is, is, a, is, a, is a virgin, particularly with the original there, a female who's never had uh, sexual intercourse. But, but the reality here, and the meaning of the word here that we have in this context is betrothed. And that's someone who has been promised to be married to somebody else. So there's a couple, and they've been promised to marry one another. Now it's either by their own decision, or it's been by the, their family deciding for them, but they are betrothed. We, we, we read of this in the in the Christmas story. We, we know it well. We know that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. They were going to be married to one another. And so, as we think of this as the word betrothed, it gives us a much better understanding of who Paul is addressing. For Paul is addressing into the lives of the people that were single. They were unmarried. Single, unmarried, 
but they've been promised in marriage. We possibly could think of it as engagement. That's probably a close word that we would have in our minds. But there's probably a greater sort of uh, sense of, of responsibility to that, a greater degree of, of uh, expectation with uh, regard to it. Now, this person should be a virgin. This person should not be someone who has engaged in sex, because as we've seen before from God's Word, as we've seen earlier in this chapter and earlier in the passage, sex outside of marriage is sin. And so this betrothed person, they are single, they're waiting to get married, they've been promised, and they should be as um, they should be uh, sexually pure. Now, God's expectation, God's command for the unmarried is that they are virgins, that they are sexually pure. Gentlemen, I know that in some cultures, the male's sexual purity is not considered as important as the female's. And there's no distinction in God's word. Sexual purity, no sex before marriage, is both for the lady and for the man. It is for everyone. And you probably heard the word fornication, and we're told not to be fornicators. Fornication, simply put, is having sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, and it is a sin. And God is calling his people to be sexually pure. Now betrothal in those days was, was a big deal, and it would be something that the whole family would be involved with, and very often it would be the fathers and the uncles that would come together, and I'm sure that the, the mummies and the aunties would be behind the scenes, and, and they would be working this out. And uh, maybe for some of you from the African context, that, that's something that sort of is not dissimilar to what you're used to. You're used to the, the family gathering and, and, and chatting this through and, and working out the way forward. And there would be a betrothal and a bride price and then uh, a marriage. And so we have this situation that Paul is speaking into. He hasn't spoken to these people before. It's a first. He hasn't spoken to the people that are betrothed. But he says in verse 25, as he carries on, I have no commandment from the Lord. Which is basically Paul saying that unlike the subject of marriage that he talked about before, Jesus, when he was on this earth, spoke directly into marriage, spoke directly into divorce. And so the Apostle Paul in the previous verses would say this is from the Lord. But he's saying there isn't that. Jesus didn't speak directly at about this subject. But at the same time, Paul is stressing that this teaching comes with his apostolic authority. Verse 25 continues, But I give my judgment as one 
by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So friends, this means this teaching is important. We can't say this is not important because Jesus didn't tell it. This is important. This is God's word. This is the Apostle Paul, who was a mouthpiece for God. And we have his word recorded for us as God's word. So it is important. It's not a command from the Lord, as Jesus didn't bring this teaching before. But it is a judgment. It is something that's been given to us by the Lord through the means of Paul the Apostle. The other point of clarification that we need at the very beginning to get the most from this passage is, is what Paul means in verse the first part of verse 26 when he says, I think that in view of the present distresses, I think that in the view of the present distresses, because he goes on to say what he's saying because of the present distresses. And so for us to understand what this passage is meaning, it would really be helpful for us to get a mind around what this is. He's going to give advice to people that are betrothed in the context of the present distress. He's going to encourage people to get married or not to get married because of the present distress. And I have to confess... When I first looked at that, I thought, well, that's straightforward. And then reading around and looking, I realized there's two sort of main ideas that are out there with regard to this. You see, that, that present distress could be translated in two slightly different ways that put two slightly different emphasis on it. And some people believe that it refers not to a single crisis event in history, but the, the, the language is more along the lines of it's a constraint as inherent in the nature of things. So, so what basically they, they feel is this isn't something that happens uh, as a one-off event, but this is a constraint that incurs for the entire period between Christ first and second coming. So that would mean that we are now living in the present distresses. And, and we could argue that the, the, that the earthquake in Turkey is a manifestation of this present distress. We're living in a time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. We're living in the last days. We're living in the present distresses. We're living in difficult times. And some folk feel that that is what's been said. And then other folk look at this, uh, and the scholars look at this, and, and they, they said this is actually referring to a crisis in a historic event, a state of distress or trouble. They would argue that from the language, it's actually talking about a particular event rather than generic events in general. And it is thought that this distress that's been talked of there was a, a, a famine that was had in AD 51. And that famine caused food shortages that last up to five years. It, it brought about social unrest. There were riots. There was, un, uh, there was economic uncertainty. 
I don't know if you remember back to when they announced COVID happened and you went into the shops and everything had vanished, all the toilet paper had been bought and you think, what's happening here? There was, there was uncertainty, so people were panicking and that's what was happening in, in, in those days. There was panic buying, it was difficult time and Paul's advice to hold off marriage until, until things settle down makes all the sense. Now, these two options, they don't change the application. The application that, that Paul is bringing and highlighting is that our time on earth is temporary and we shouldn't become too attached to the earthly activities. We should be living beyond that, like we heard last week. Where is our value? Our value is in the fact that Christ has called us and we've been bought with a price. And because of that, we don't become too attached to the earth's activities, the world's values. But I think on balance, and I won't be dogmatic, I'm not going to have a fight over it, but I think the second is most likely. The second is, is, is most likely because of the historic and cultural context and how they literally, the language works out, it, it fits in so well. You see, it's, it's much easier for a single person to get through a social upheaval than a married person, particularly a, a newly married person. They have obligations, they have responsibilities, and generally speaking, in those days and ages, as soon as a couple got married, within nine, ten months, there was a baby. And a baby coming in a time of economic hardship and distress is really difficult. And so there was a practical essence here. And so what I want us to do now is, is to continue to look at what Paul advises to those that are betrothed. They've been promised to each other in the light of this present distress or this impending distress, this, this problem that is there. And he starts off by going back a bit. He doesn't quite address the betrothed first. He says, if you're married, stay married. He keeps coming back to that. There's no excuse to get divorced. We, we looked at some of the reasons why you may. Uh, we're not going to go over that again, but the, the, the default main position without the caveats is if you're married, you stay married, you have no choice. It's a recap, a little sort of headline recap of what Paul said earlier in the chapter. And then he also goes on and says, if you're unmarried, stay unmarried. Now, this is not a commandment, this advice. We need to be aware of this. We need to be very, very aware that this is advice that Paul is giving and not a commandment. Paul is speaking wisdom into this particular situation. He says that if you do marry, you've not sinned, and if you're betrothed to a woman, uh, married, she's not sinned. So it's, it, if you do or you don't, there's not sin there. It's not a commandment. There is advice. And it also help us at this stage remember that this advice is in the light of the present distresses. So Paul is giving advice into a particular situation. And what Paul is recommending to these people at Corinth is in the light of the present distresses. 
Now, all other situations are not to be kept in the same way. Uh, and everything that Paul advises in this passage is in the light of the present distresses that the Corinthians are experienced. And it would be wrong from this passage to say that it's better for a Christian to be single. Full stop. At that moment in time, there was a lot of merit and a lot of benefit to be kept single. But this passage isn't a passage in God's Word that's saying singleness is better than being married. Full stop. This is not a passage that's saying that if, if you want to be the most committed Christian possible, you have to be someone who's going to be committed to singleness. No. That, that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is giving two alternatives and giving advice into a very, very difficult situation. It's not bringing a, a principle or a rule or a law. And it certainly doesn't give us warrant to say that preachers should be unmarried or priests should be unmarried. There's, there's nothing there about that at all. It's speaking to this particular situation. But he is very candid. And he says that in the light of what goes on, he says that when you are married, you'll have worldly troubles. And the Apostle Paul says, I, I, I would spare you from that. The Apostle Paul at this stage is single. And he knows that he can do things that a married man can't do. He can go around on mission tours. He, can, he doesn't have to keep thinking about his wife or his family because he hasn't got them. He hasn't got those worldly troubles. And there are worldly troubles and concerns that a married person has that a single person doesn't have. And these sorts of troubles, these sorts of challenges, would be magnified in a time of distress. And so the husband would have to be caring for the wife in a time of distress. It's, it's magnified. You, you need to take care of children. It's magnified. Often in those situations, as he got married, he would have a responsibility to his wife's family. And then there would be in-laws to take care of, and then suddenly concerns would get bigger and worldly troubles would be greater. And so he said, look, these distresses, I, I, I would want to spare you from them. They're real. They're difficult. And then Paul goes on to emphasize kingdom living. We need to be careful with this as we come to the end of verse 29. He says, those that have wise wives live as though they had none. They mourn as though they were not mourning and rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and buy as though they had no goods and deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. And this could be a bit complicated because immediately we could take this verse out of context, particularly that one, if they have wives, live as though they had none. Is Paul saying to these men, get rid of your wives, every man for yourself, look after yourself and do live like that? Well, of course not. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. But it looks like it, doesn't it? So we need to work at the text. We need to work at this passage. We need to work at the context and see what's going on. Mourn as though they were not mourning. 
rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Buy goods as though they had no goods. Deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. The, the, the contrast, the, the, the difficult, what's going on? And then the key is at the end. As Paul says, for the present form of this world is passing away. And so Paul is saying, yes, there is distresses. And yes, there are everyday occurrences, wives, husbands, mourning, rejoicing, buying, selling, dealing. This is what goes on in the world. But remember, remember what's going on in the world in everyday life is not what life is all about. You see, there's a link to what happened before. There's a link to that earlier bit. There's a link there in this sense that Paul was telling the, 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 the Corinthians that their value is not in what the world tells them their value is. Their value is in Christ. Their value is that they are called. Their value is that God has paid the price for them. And because God has called them and paid a price for them, they shouldn't be living for this world. And so he's saying, in this dangerous time, in these difficult days, yes, your life has opportunities. Yes, your life has concerns. Yes, there is these present distresses. But remember, this world and everyday living is not what life is all about. We are to set our eyes on eternity. Corinthians is like this. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. The world is represented in this grave. It just finishes. It doesn't last forever. And, and yes, we have wives and husbands. And yes, we have mournings and rejoicings. And yes, we have need of buying goods and need of dealing with these worlds. And they must continue. They must happen. Life must go on. But that's not the big deal. The big deal, Corinthians, is that you've been saved. The big deal is you've been bought with a price. The big deal is the fact that this present world is passing away. And your investment for life, it should be for kingdom living. Your investment for life should be looking forward to eternity, not getting caught up in this moment. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are we living for? Are we so caught up in husbands and wives that we are not living for Christ? We, we, we are living in a time now where there is mourning going on around and about us. And it is right for us to mourn. And it is right for us to be sad. But that mourning and sadness shouldn't rob us of the fact that we should be looking forward to eternity. And similarly, our rejoicing and our joyfulness of a newborn baby shouldn't rob us of the fact that we should be looking forward to eternity. And then the busyness of your week shouldn't rob you of the fact that we should be looking forward to our eternity. We need to be eternally minded people. 
right to our relationships. And Paul brings it right back to relationships and he brings it right back to marriage and he brings it right back to those that are being betrothed. But I just want to emphasize this for a moment. In our situation now, we are living in this world and we know of joys and we know of mourning and we know of relationships and we have a need to to buy and sell and be involved and yes we are but don't let those things dictate your life they're not your life are you eating to live or are you living to eat as people say and what are we living for? Are we living to live for this moment? Or are we living for eternity? We've been saved for in eternity. The price that has bought us has bought us in eternity with our Heavenly Father. And so this is what was being said to them. Look, look beyond the, the moment. Look to the eternity. And then he brings it back to the marriage situation. He brings it back to those that are betrothed to be married. In verses 32 to 34, the first part of 34, he's speaking of some of the challenges of marriage. And he says that a married person is anxious. A married person is anxious. He's anxious about worldly things, about pleasing his spouse. It's been very open. And then sometimes our our marriages can be so focused on worldly things and pleasing our wives that it pushes our eternal view out of the way. And that's a danger. That is a danger. It's not a showstopper. It's a danger. And, and, and Paul is, is saying this is this is a danger. This is this is the situation. And this is even more difficult and even more problematic when you're living in distressing times, like the Corinthians were. And he was underlining it. These are distressing times. And, and these worldly things and pleasing your spouse will become magnified all the more in these difficult times. And he goes on in verse 34 to 35 to contrast it with a single person. And he says, look, the single person doesn't have these concerns. A single person doesn't have these concerns. I've, I've, I've often said it that I didn't realize kind of like how selfish I was until I got married. And as I was just sort of learning and getting my head around that, child number one came along. And then I realized how really selfish I was when someone was dependent on me 24-7. When you are married, there is a responsibility. When you are single, you haven't got that. And when you haven't got that, there is the opportunity, opportunity, not it will happen, there's an opportunity to give undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, now, singleness nowadays is celebrated, not as an opportunity to give undivided devotion to the Lord, but it's celebrated as to be able to give undivided attention to yourself. But Paul, from his spiritual perspective, speaking to these Corinthians is saying, look, that there is a real blessedness about being single. And particularly in these stressful situations. There are material advantages 
being single, and there are spiritual advantages. Materially, you don't have to worry about someone else. Materially, you have more money for yourself, or more money to be able to give away. Spiritual advantages, you have more time for the Lord, more time to devote yourself. You haven't got that. And Paul spells both those things out. And so, Paul wants to help those that are betrothed. They're not married yet. They're promised to be married. And he says to the married, look, you stay married. And he says to the single, look, I advise you to stay single. But to those that are betrothed, to those that have been promised in marriage, to those that their families that were dealing with the bride price and talking about it and agreed this marriage to happen, Paul said, look, you've got some choices. And he sets out some guidelines. And he sets out some very helpful guidelines for them then. And I think these guidelines are also very helpful for us now. Our situation is different, but let's look what it says to them then, and then we can see how it could be helpful to us now. You see, betrothal meant that they were heading for marriage. They're not married. And so Paul said, look, you've got two options here. You can get married, or you can leave it. You don't have to get married. Maybe leave it till after the distresses, or maybe call it off in total. You're not married. You can either get married or stay single as you are. And in verse 36, he gives some guidelines of why, if you're betrothed, you should get married. And the first one is here, and it's, it's interesting because he's, he, he's, he's saying, if anyone thinks, in verse 36, if anyone thinks that he's not betraying, properly towards his betrothed. So that the person should get married if the members of the family are thinking that's what should happen. It's interesting, isn't it? If he's not behaving properly, if they're concerned about this, and thinking, why are they not getting married? If there's pressure from the family with regard to that, then Paul's saying, well, yeah, perhaps you should get married. And then alongside that, he said, if his passions are strong, We've been here before, we know what strong passions are. You burn from them, don't you? It, it, the temptation of a young couple grows stronger and stronger, the more attracted they are physically to one another, and they're, they're waiting for their wedding day because they know that that's when they can consummate the marriage and the, the self-control can stop and they can come together and they can enact that sex and they can have that enjoyment and passions are strong. And if, if passions are strong, Paul said, get married. Don't, don't call it off. If, if this is something that's, yes, don't call it off. And then he goes on in that verse 38 and says, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him get married. And if they get married, there is no sin. So Paul is speaking into the situation and saying, look, it's probably better for you to stay apart because of this distressful situation, but... If people around you, society, parents, are saying that this is not going right and you should get married, then listen to them. If you can't control your, your lusts and your passions are strong, get married. If, if this is what you have been brought to, to believe you should do, get married. 
And then conversely, in, in verse 37, he sets out the reasons not to proceed. Uh, and it says, whoever is firmly established in his heart, that the person needed to come in their mind to think this is, this is not right at this moment in time. I, I shouldn't get married. And maybe they think that, but they need to pass the second test. Is it being under no necessity? As in, the family are not saying, look, you really should get married. The family is saying, you really should get married. If, if society is pushing that upon them, then there's a necessity. And Paul's saying, no, then you can't say no. And then thirdly, you have to be, you have to have your desires under control. They have to have control of themselves, control of their sexual feelings. They know, okay, the, the consequence of this is I'm saying, no, I'm going to absent from sex. That's not going to happen. We're going to be celibate. We're not going to enter into sex because we are not married. We're not going to get married. We're going to be apart. And you can only do that if you can control your desires. And again, that notion of being determined in his heart. God needs to have persuaded them. So what Paul is laying out is not this is what you must do or this is what you should do, this is what you have to do. He's saying there are ways of looking at this. You need to discern this. You need to work this out. And this is the principles that you need to apply in working it out. And so what does this mean to us? I think it speaks into our situation. It certainly speaks into the conversation that we were having yesterday in regard to, to relationships. We had some great discussions, and I'm really thankful for the openness that we had. And, and, and those that weren't here, you missed out. We had the girls on one side and the guys on the other, and, and, and they got quite frantic at times, but it was good, it was helpful. But one thing that we did notice was the world in this day and age is a day and age of casual relationships. They didn't happen in Paul's time. It wasn't casual relationships like that. It wasn't dating for the sake of, of dating. I mean, you, you hear of little kids in the kindergarten. Oh, look, that's his boyfriend, that's his girlfriend. It starts as young as that. And then, then the kids in middle school are, are, are dating. Oh, I'm not going out with him anymore. I'm going out with them now. What? How is that? What's going on? And, and then you see it in university settings, don't you? People sort of hooking up and getting on with each other. And that was not around in the culture of the Bible. So the Bible doesn't mention it. Paul doesn't mention it. He doesn't talk about, and when you're going out. It wasn't a going out status. When you're courting, it was you were betrothed or you were not betrothed. It was just as simple as that. And, and this culture nowadays is not a helpful culture. These casual relationships are not helpful. This sort of Dating for the sake of dating is not a biblical concept. And I would argue this passage speaks directly into relationships now. It uses that language of being uh, betrothed. And I believe that we can say that as Christian young men and women, when you're thinking about relationships, when you're thinking about getting involved with somebody, in a relationship sort of setting, whether you call it dating, whether you call it courting, whether you call it whatever you call it, is you should be entering this with a view to marriage. 
It is not a game. It is not to play about with. It's not for your enjoyment. The world tells you the relationship's about enjoyment. It's about the 14th of February and Cupid and chocolates and fluffy Cupids floating around and this lovely feeling of falling in love and then a horrible feeling of falling out of love and a lovely feeling of falling in love again and then a horrible feeling of falling out of it and then bickering and backbiting and, and getting stressed because your friend is smiling at that person, that person's his person, that person's their person and it's all a huge mess. And it messes with church unity when youth groups and young people start dating without being serious about it. You shouldn't just sort of get into a relationship because it's a game. But there's that phrase, isn't it? That man is a player. What game is he playing? He's playing a flirting game. He's playing a relationship. He's not for real. And he's celebrated by the world. That's not biblical. There's not God-honoring. And, and it shouldn't be just because it makes me feel good. Oh, I, want, I want to feel better about myself. I'll get a date. I need some new clothes. I need a new phone. I need, I'll get a date. I'll get some guy to, 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 to buy things for me. No, this, this is not what it's about. You can't say, well, everyone else is doing it, so I have to do it. Or you don't want to do it because I'm going to get left on the shelf. You know? Your kind aunt tells you, if you carry on, you don't make yourself married to you, you'll be left on the shelf. So you start trying out gentlemen or ladies. And then you mustn't go out with someone because you feel sorry for them. For Christian friends, you've got to take dating, you've got to take relationships seriously. And I believe this passage and others within God's Word is telling us that. You need to think of dating and relationships as working towards betrothal, working towards marriage. Now I know that not all those relationships are going to work out, and that's not a problem. But the problem is where your heart is and where your attitude is. And you need that right attitude. And the beauty of a relationship and, and, uh, and, uh, and the engagement and a betrothal is you're not married. So if you realize that this is going wrong, if you realize that person is not the person for you, if you realize that that annoying habit is going to kill you if you're married, you can take a step back. You can walk away from it. There's no shame. Pain, difficulty, challenges, yes. But you can do it. But once you're married, you're stuck. And so there is this sort of fire break, if you like, that allows you to righteously Look towards marriage, but also righteously walk away from it if it's not right or it's proper. But jumping in and out of relationships is emotionally damaging. You know, I've, I've worked with people who've been sort of falling in and out of love and relationships, and it's a nightmare because they need to be focused on their job, and they're not because there's little tweety birds floating around. And it's all exciting. And you can get good things out of them there, get some work out of them there because it's a good feeling. And then a few weeks later, they sort of, it's all doomed. What's happened? But it didn't work. And there's this roller coaster of emotions going on. 
And it's spiritually dangerous because it's not as God intended. And it can lead to all sorts of temptation. And as I said before, it can be damaging to churches, breaking unity, upsetting people. And so Paul has given this advice, hasn't he? He said, look, two options. He, set, he sets out, if you're, if you're going to get married, this is why you should. If you're not going to proceed, this is the reasons why uh, you, you shouldn't. Uh, and so he, he, he outlines two outcomes. He says, in spite of these present difficulties, he says to them, so he who marries his betrothed does well. He's not opposed to marriage. Paul is not opposed to marriage. He says, if you marry, you do well. And then he goes on to point out that he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And the context of doing even better is in this situation of the present difficulties. He's not saying that singleness is better than marriedness. There are those of you here that God will gift marriage, and there may be some of you here that God for a season, or maybe for your whole life, will gift you with singleness. And neither singleness or marriedness is better. We can't see it like that. And you see, what is going on here is the man who, who, who doesn't marry has done better because of the pleasant complexities. But it doesn't mean that he's never going to get married. It doesn't even mean that he might never get married to that woman that he was betrothed to. After that period of time, they could get married if it's appropriate. Now, the, the decision to get married in those days is, is placed or the decision that Paul was saying is placed in the hands of those. He's not saying the church says you get married or don't get married. He's not saying that God says you get married or don't get married. He's saying, look, you need to judge this on the merit of the situation. And this is interesting, isn't it? Because in some cultures, and certainly in, in Europe and the UK in the past, marriage has been put on the pedestal, and everyone says you must get married, and everyone who didn't get married was seen as a bit of a, a misfit, someone who was pitied, and you've got that expression, are you left on the shelf, and always a bridesmaid, never a bride. And in some churches, singles after a certain age aren't well catered for. And that's wrong. That's wrong. But there's a contrast now because singleness, certainly in Europe, has become part, uh, it's not seen as social failure, it's seen as social success. It's a mark of liberation, it's putting away traditional ideas, it's being independent and you carry on and, and it's fueled by selfishness and often sexual promiscuity. And the Apostle Paul here is refusing to go on an extreme. He's recognizing that it's legitimate to be single, and it's legitimate to be married. And practically speaking, sometimes it's better to be single in some circumstances. And he says this, I say this for your own benefit. He's not laying a restraint. He's saying you're free to choose. Use these guidelines. But there's some principles that underline these guidelines. It goes back to verse 9 of this chapter. If you cannot exercise self-control, you should get married. If, if your sexual desires are burning within you, you're better to marry 
who burn with passion. Single person here, your sexual purity matters to God. And you need to be real about it. If you cannot exercise self-control, then you need to get married. You need to ask God to help you be patient until you get married, for sure. You need to ask God to help you battle with that. And then it shouldn't be a surprise to us that we have these urges because marriage and sex is a blessing from God. And, and the self-control issue shouldn't surprise us because we, we, we're made with these desires. And, and you must not just shrug your shoulders and say, I can't help it. I was made that way. I'll, I'll just sit. No. That's not an excuse. We're given a pattern and a plan. And the other caveat here is that a believer should only marry in the Lord. There's no right to be outside of that. And so we need this balance within our church life and in our church family. Those of us who are married need to stop treating the singles like they have a disease. Or when you're going to get married, or you're not getting longer. The biological clock is still ticking. Why are you still single? Maybe if you did this out the other, you could attract somebody. We have to remember, he who refrains from marriage will do them better. There's a right time for it. And on the other hand, those of you that are single need to be aware of your own propaganda. I think that if anything is a disease, it's marriage. People needing to pair up and get married only because they can't make it on their own. Really, what are they like? And I know it doesn't help when your uncles and aunties ask you incentive questions like, when are you going to get married? Have you not got married yet? Who's a special person? And it's not nice when married couples invite you around for a meal and they're sitting opposite you to this the person they think is right for you. It doesn't help, does it? But those of you who are single, remember, he who marries does well. But in all of this, in all of this, we have to come and remember that the love story that truly makes us complete, the love story that truly matters is not with another human being. The greatest love story. And the love story that completes us as a human. And the love story that gives us great value is God's love story for us. It's how he called us called us when we were still ugly in our sins and sent Jesus to pay the price for us when we were still ugly in our sins and loved us with an everlasting love, a love which didn't have a beginning and a love that doesn't have an end and loves us recklessly with giving up his own son to pay the price for our sins and friends don't get caught up in the world telling you that relationships is all that matters. They're a blessing. But what really does matter is your relationship with God. And what really does matter is if you know that true love story, the best love story for yourself. Amen.